Well, I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Today we come to one of the best known stories in the Bible. Both inside and outside the church, most everyone has some level of familiarity with David and Goliath. Whether it's in sports, business, or politics, whenever a smaller, weaker person, team, group defeats a larger, stronger opponent, you'll hear the names David and Goliath. Well, we begin this narrative today, and I thought it was going to take us three weeks. It might take four weeks to complete it. There's so much here. And I know that you've heard me say that before with other passages, and I meant it in other passages. But really, there is so much. I think this is the longest narrative in 1 Samuel. There are details galore. We're told everything that David brought in his lunchbox. We're told every conversation David had uh, on the Israelite line. We're given probably the most detailed description of one of the Bible's bad guys. There are so many things here which is why we're going to need three, probably four sermons to wade through it. You know, earlier in the week when I was putting together the bulletin information, I was very ambitious and thought I would make it to verse 30. Well, it became apparent as I uh, worked through this passage that uh, that was going to be impossible. And so today we're stopping at verse 11. And so we're going to... Begin in verse 1 and go through verse 11. So where to start? Well, first, and some of you are not going to be surprised. First, we have to start by slaying the common application of this story. That's where we have to start. What's the common application? It's this. Christian, have faith. Like David, so that you too can go out and slay the giants of your day. Whether it's the bully at school, not literal slaying, or your poor self image. You know, sadly, uh, these examples are not hard to find. It just took a couple clip, a couple clicks on the internet, and I found a sermon manuscript. Someone who is preaching this passage, and he asked the question, "What's your Goliath?" And then he went to name. He went to. He made a list. Is it resentment, fear, racism, loneliness? Shame, worry, jealousy, depression, bitterness, pride, selfishness, insecurity, addiction. What's your Goliath? Identify it and then dare to be like David. 
You know, if that's the sermon you were expecting, you're going to be greatly disappointed. In a few minutes, it will become apparent who we are in the story, and it's not David. So I cannot stand here and tell you to go gather your five stones of obedience, prayer, fellowship, worship, and witnessing. And then step out onto the battlefield of your life and bring down the giants that are oppressing you. I won't do it. The story is not about us. Well, then who or what is this most famous story about? Isn't that a silly question to ask? You think, John, everyone knows what this story is about. Well, a lot of times, the more familiar stories are the ones we can get Most wacky on. First, remember, this is a narrative from the history of God's people. This is an account of something that happened in history. You can travel to Israel today. Take a bus tour to Bethlehem and drive west 14 miles and see the valley where this took place. You can see the creek bed where David gathered the stones. You can see this. This is a story from Israel's history. Just as God delivered his people from Pharaoh and brought them out of Egypt, God defeated a very real enemy that wanted to enslave and ultimately erase his covenant people. So that's the immediate Read on this story. But there's a larger, fuller meaning as well, isn't there? In this story, we see a shadow of the greater David who will come and defeat the greater Goliath. You know, as we see this weak young man go out alone onto the field of battle to face a terrifying giant, our minds should be instantly reminded of the Lord Jesus, the champion of heaven, who went out all alone and defeated the greatest enemies of his people, Satan, sin, and death. It's not in the bulletin but I've entitled this little mini-series of 1 Samuel 17, Behold Your Champion. And that's what I want you to do. I don't want to call you to be like David and go slay your giants. I want to tell you that in the Lord Jesus, we have a greater David who has already won a great victory on behalf of his people. That's the greater application of this text. Not dare to be a David, but behold your victorious champion. So that you, dear saints, like those terrified soldiers, can shout for joy and leave your positions of hiding and safety and follow your king as the darkness is driven away. That's a preview of where we're going. 
But let's pray, and then we'll look at these first 11 verses together. Father God, I do ask that you would speak to your people as your word is read and preached to us. Father, I covet the prayers of your people and I am so grateful for their prayers during the week as I labor in preparation for this sermon. And Lord, I now plead to you that you would help this weak servant, this man of dust, as he opens your word and stands before your people. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll read the first 11 verses of chapter 17. And I don't want to be dramatic, but I want to be faithful to the text. And so... If I speak a little louder than normal when I get to Goliath's part, just this is your warning. Don't jump out of your seat, okay? Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succoth and Azekah in Ephrath Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose span was six cubits, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went out before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not Servants of Saul, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. 
All right, so I mentioned to you the name of this mini-series of chapter 17, Behold Your Champion. That's going to be the first name for all of these, and then there will be a colon with a following description. And so today, it is Behold Your Champion, colon, Battle Lines Drawn. Battle Lines Drawn, that's what we see in these verses And again, we're told here at the beginning that this scene took place 14 miles west of Bethlehem in the valley of Elah. You've got the Philistine army on one side, the army of Israel on the other side, and there's this large open valley between them. This no man's land. And this is the field that's been established. Then in verse 4, we're introduced to the enemy's champion, I want you to picture this. Picture that you're among the army of Israel. And there's a wide valley before you. The Philistine army is across the way. Both sides are yelling and cheering. Both sides are clashing sword and spear against shield. Both sides are stomping their feet. But then you see something. You see movement within the Philistine ranks, you see an unbelievably large figure wading through a sea of enemy soldiers. Sternum up on this man is exposed above the sea of bodies. And then the crowd parts and out thunders all alone on this no man's land, Goliath of Gath. Verse 4 calls him a champion. Now most of the time when we uh, hear that word today, we think of someone who wins it all. We think of a team that makes it all the way through the playoffs and wins the last big game. Shout out to the Tishomingo girls basketball team. You did it. State champs. That's what we normally think. And sure, Goliath has been undefeated up to this point. I mean, he's alive. But the word champion here has a slightly different meaning. It means the man in between. The man of the middle. The man of the between. It's someone who goes out all alone and stands between his people and his opponent. And that's exactly what Goliath does and what an intimidating champion he was. We're told his height. That's how it starts. Six cubits in a span. I'm going to be translating these biblical measurements over to measurements you'll be familiar with. Six cubits in a span, and our measurement is nine foot six inches. This is a giant of a man. If you remember back when Moses sent spies, this is in Numbers, I think Numbers 13, Moses sends spies into the land of Canaan to go and scope it out. They came back and reported seeing the descendants of Anak. A people great and tall. They said, we're like grasshoppers compared to them. They're they're terrified. And they told Moses and the rest, hey, these guys came from the Nephilim. 
Those mighty men of renown that are briefly mentioned pre-flood in Genesis 6. And I don't know if you've gotten there yet in Bill's Sunday school class, but in Joshua, as the land is taken, these descendants of Anak are driven out of the land of Canaan and they're pushed into different cities, Gaza, Ashdod, and Gath, Goliath's hometown. This is a terrifying giant of a man. Then in verse 5, his armor is described. He wore a helmet covering most of his head, but not all. He wore a coat of mail, 5,000 shekels. That's 126 pounds. Can you imagine wearing a metal shirt that weighed 126 pounds? His legs were covered with armor, armor plates on his shins and thighs. Then there's his shield bearer with him, this little guy, probably a big guy from our standards, who would go before him and just carry his shield. And whenever he needed it, he'd reach down and grab it and take it up. We're told of his weapons in verse 6. He had a javelin of bronze. This was like a throwing spear. If you've seen track and field, you've seen a javelin. I've got no doubt that if Goliath launched this javelin at a a horse horse rider, um, I mean, it would... If it hit the target, it would knock the man backwards and sideways off the top of a horse. We're told that he had a spear whose, beam, whose handle, the wooden handle, was a weaver's beam, and the point alone weighed 15 pounds. Some of you have used a 10-pound sledgehammer before, and you know what it's like to pick it up and just let it fall. Pick it up and let it fall. Could you imagine wielding a weapon with a 15-pound head on the end of it? And then, of course, later we see that he had a sword as well. But here's the point. This giant of a man is well-armored, well-armed. If he was unclothed and unarmed, his strength alone would be bad enough. But then cover him with all this metal... And give him weapons large enough to skewer an angry bull. And you have a, the full horrifying picture of what the soldiers of Israel beheld. And then he speaks. Apparently they had no trouble hearing his voice. He asked the question, why have you come out to draw up for battle? What are you doing here? Am I not a Philistine? Or you could say, am I not the Philistine? He was the Philistine. And then he says, you are servants of Saul. I'm the Philistine and you are the slaves of Saul. What are you doing here? And then he makes an offer. One that was common in that day. He says, choose a man. From your army, choose your best, your meanest, your toughest guy, your greatest warrior. Send him out to face me alone in single combat. And if he kills me, we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, 
You belong to us. Again, this was common in the day. It prevented mass bloodshed. It prevented both sides just hacking each other to pieces. It was more efficient, less wasteful. Not as many casualties, really just one casualty. You could gain an army of slaves or risk becoming slaves yourselves, but stay alive. Or you could lose lots of warriors to injury and death. And maybe you win, maybe you lose. So that's the challenge. And then before we move on, we need to make sure to note the word defy. That's an important word. Goliath thunders, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. This is another theme of this chapter. Defiance of the living God. You know, I was reading Dale Ralph Davis in preparation, and he said that when you're looking for the meaning of a passage, when you're looking for a theme, when you're looking for emphases, look for repeated words. And look for words that show up again and again because they will show you what the author is trying to communicate. Well, the word defy, or at least its root, shows up six times in this chapter. We'll see it every week. Every week it's mentioned, defy. Which means this isn't just a big, strong killer that David puts down. This is a giant who is defying, mocking, deriding not only the people of Israel, but the God of Israel. And we'll see David pick up on this later, probably next week, when he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You know, Goliath makes himself an object for destruction, not simply because he's a Philistine, but because of this booming bravado that dishonors the living God. So the stage is being set, the pieces are moving, and here at the beginning of chapter 17, we meet the champion of the Philistines. Well, what's the reaction on Israel's side? Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, we'll get to Saul and his soldiers in just a moment. But what should we as readers pick up on? Maybe we can give a pass to Saul and his soldiers because they weren't privy to what was said in chapter 16. But remember back chapter 16, verse 7? The Lord sends Samuel to go to Bethlehem to find Jesse and to anoint one of his sons. And he gets there and he sees the first son. And he's like, oh man, this is an impressive kid. This is a guy that people could get behind. And the Lord says, no. Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. That same 
Same thing applies here. We're given so many details on Goliath, his his height, his weapons, his armor. But if only God's people could see as God sees. If only they could recall to mind the plan and purpose and promises of God, they would not fear. They'd remember our God promised to make Abraham's descendants more than the number of the stars in the sky. Our God drowned all Pharaoh's army while we just stood and watched on the seashore. Our God calls us his inheritance and his treasured possession. If only they could have seen as God sees, they'd be at peace. But they don't. All they see is Goliath of Gath. They see the external appearance of a man, his stature, his weapons, his armor, and their hearts fail. Well, Goliath challenged them to send out a champion. Who should that have been? Well, King Saul, right? He's the biggest, tallest man in all of Israel. I mean, that's made clear from the first time we meet him. Head and shoulders above everyone else. Do you remember the wish of the people back in chapter 8 when they said, Samuel, we want a king. We want someone who can lead us out into battle. And they got the biggest, tallest man in all of Israel. Saul should be the one going out there. But Saul is shaking in his boots. One commentator pointed out that there's a valuable lesson for us to learn here. And it's that if you happen to find your security in some worldly strength or external attribute, things can fall apart pretty quickly. You know, Saul was the tallest man in all of Israel, but there was someone out there taller. I mean, I'm sure you've heard or thought of this before, you might have money, but there's always someone richer than you. You might be smart, but there's always going to be somebody smarter. You might be good at your job, but there, someone might come along more skilled at your profession than you. There's always someone faster, always someone prettier, always someone Fill in the blank. Beware of placing your security in your strength, your ability, your gifting, your bank account. Because when that bigger fish comes along, your foundation will crumble to nothing. Better to find your identity in and security with The one who says of himself, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Saul and his men have their confidence destroyed. 
And in verse 16, we're told that for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. For 40 days, Goliath repeats this. He comes out in the morning and in the evening. He belittles Saul's army. He mocks them. And they all prove failures. No champion emerges from Israel's line. Nobody comes out. You know, 40 is one of those important numbers that you see all through the Bible. It's a number that can symbolize a period of trial or testing. You'll remember the Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness before entering the promised land. You see the Lord Jesus spend 40 days alone in the, another wilderness being tempted by Satan. And here for 40 days, Goliath strode out, mocking the army of Israel. And they all proved failures. No one stepped up. No one went out to fight. And if David hadn't shown up with lunch, no one ever would have. Because in their minds, this nine foot six giant was greater than the living God. See, this is where you and I find ourselves in the story. You want to analogize this and see yourself in the narrative. This is where you are, and this is where I am. Among the ranks of the trembling, cowering army of Saul. And anyone who says differently would probably say as well, you know, I wouldn't have eaten that fruit in the garden. If only I'd been there. Please. We aren't the champion. We're among the soldiers. And if that's the case, then what should our prayer be? Lord, grow my trust in you. Lord, help me to see as you see. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, we we may talk boldly about our faith, but what happens when the doctor walks in the room and tells you the worst possible news? Do we act like the diagnosis is bigger than the living God? Or do we plead that the Spirit would direct our eyes to the champion, Jesus Christ? What would happen tomorrow if the markets just crashed? Your retirement and long-term savings just vanished. Would we act like that financial collapse is bigger than our God? Or would we plead that the Spirit would direct our eyes to our champion, Jesus Christ. These are just two scenarios. I'm sure you can come up with any number. But know that we're among these soldiers. And so the question is, what will a crisis reveal of our theology? You know, I recently read a, a book that Molly's been trying to get me to read for years. I'm hard-headed. I finally read it. 
It's titled The Hiding Place. It's fantastic. Everyone should read it. I'll bother you about it now. <laughs> it's the account of a Dutch woman named Corrie Ten Boom who lived in Nazi-occupied Holland during World War II. She and her family hid Jewish friends and neighbors in their home, and when found out, they were sent, uh, she and her sister were sent into the concentration camp of Ravensbrück. And you know the prayer that you read in this narrative over and over and over again, this prayer that she prays, help me, Lord Jesus. I can't do it on my own. Help me. I want to read you a paragraph from the preface of this book. It came to my mind last night. Here's the preface. This, the author was writing this. Quote, It was in May 1968 that we attended a church service in Germany. A man was speaking about his experiences in a Nazi concentration camp. His face told the story more eloquently than his words. Pain-haunted eyes, shaking hands that could not forget. He was followed at the lectern by a white-haired woman, broad of frame and sensible of shoe, with a face that radiated love, peace, and joy. But... The story that these two people were relating was the same. She too had been in a concentration camp, seen the same savagery, suffered the same losses. His response was easy to understand, but hers? We stayed behind to talk with her. Cornelia Ten Booms, Worldwide Ministry of Comfort and Counsel, had begun there in the concentration camp where she had found, as the prophet Isaiah promised, a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, the shade of a great rock in a weary land. You have two people, this man and this woman, who face the same enemy, and one with a face that had pain-haunted eyes, lingering grief, fear, and sorrow, and the face of the other radiated love, peace, and joy. What's before your eyes, dear saints? Is it the godless, brute force of the world? Or is it heaven's champion, the son of the living God? We need to prepare today. Miss Corey Ten Boom's parents had been preparing her since her childhood. We need to prepare today. We need to make it our prayer today, tomorrow, and the next. Lord, Grow my trust in you. Drive away my unbelief. Hold Christ before my eyes so that when darkness comes, when my enemy appears, my instinctive gut reaction will be, help me, Lord Jesus. I can't do this on my own.
You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Well, maybe you don't feel the strength of faith Corey Ten Boom was given. Maybe that worries you. Maybe that drives you into introspection. Maybe you're worried that you'd react like Saul and the rest. Maybe you confess, I don't have the faith that David had. Well, I've got another excerpt from another book, if you'll allow it. This one by the Scottish pastor Horatius Bonner. And this book is entitled God's Way of Peace. Bonner writes, But I am not satisfied with my faith, you say. No, truly. Nor are you ever likely to be so. At least I should hope not. If you wait for this before you have peace, you will wait till life is done. It would appear that you want to believe in your own faith in order to obtain rest for your soul. The Bible does not say being satisfied about our faith, we have peace with God, but being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And between these things, there is a great difference. Satisfaction with Jesus and His work, not satisfaction with your own faith, is what God expects of you. I am satisfied with Christ, you say. Are you? Then you are a believing man. And what more do you wish? Is not satisfaction with Christ enough for you or for any sinner? And is not this the truest kind of faith? To be satisfied with Christ is faith in Christ. To be satisfied with His blood is faith in His blood. Do not bewilder yourself or allow others to bewilder you. Be assured that the very essence of faith is being satisfied with Christ and His sin-bearing work. Ask no more questions about faith, but go on your way rejoicing as one to whom Christ is all. End quote. You know, I could have just said... You aren't the champion in the story. You aren't David. Christ is the champion. Your faith is weak. You're one of those terrified soldiers huddling together in fear at the side of Goliath. Now go in peace. But I don't think that would have been helpful. I think it would be unhelpful for me to just humble the flock and kind of beat you up a little bit and say no more. I wanted to speak about Miss Cornelia Ten Boom. And I wanted to read from Horatius Bonner so that you might hear the call to believe and trust in the living God. We're the soldiers in the story, but we don't have to react like they did. It's not a foregone conclusion that we will all view this nine foot six, heavily armed man as greater than the covenant Lord of Israel. We need to watch and pray, dear saints. That's what the Lord spoke to his disciples that dark night 
in Gethsemane, as he was facing down his giant, he told them, watch and pray. Plead to your father. Confess to him that you're not satisfied with your faith. Confess to him that you're weak. Confess that apart from his grace, you would tremble like Saul. And pray that the God-picked champion would be enough for you. There is good news coming, saints. All we've seen this week is the giant. All we've seen is his armor and his weapons. We've only heard his God-defying words. But look at the first two words in verse 12. Now, David. Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine and they were greatly dismayed and afraid. But here's the champion. Here's the hope. After 40 days of failure, the same hands that are delivering lunch will bring down the giant. And we'll get there. But let's end by going backwards and remembering some words that we've already seen in 1 Samuel. Words spoken by another wonderful, godly woman whose face radiated love, peace, and joy. Words spoken by Samuel's mother, Hannah. And surely they have something to say to the plight of God's people. Listen to this prayer and see if there's anything that could be applied to the battle lines before God's people. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven children, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on him, on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness." For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder from heaven. 
The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray. Father God, it is astounding the truth in those words and how they speak to the situation your people find themselves in in 1 Samuel 17. Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would grow our trust in you, that you would grow our faith in you. We still live in a world where there are enemies and opposition and those who defy and mock you and your word. Lord, would you help us to not be fearful, to keep in sight your plan and purposes and promises, to keep in sight the provided champion you have given, and may he be enough. We ask this in his name. Amen.